This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of Quantization. In this episode, we have Yuta Teraviranos, the director of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University, and Bianca Wiley, the co-founder of Tech Reset Canada, for the second conversation on housing, living places, and homelessness. At the beginning of the previous episode, the Fungi Network, we announced that Utah and Bianca's conversation comes in two parts. Now, we want to let you know there is a third episode, Hybrid Life, which comes shortly after this one. This is episode 17, volume 14 of Signal, Salvage or Demolish. Hello, you and Bianca. Thanks for returning to the virtual studio once again. In the previous episode, which was the first part of your conversation on housing and homelessness, you talked about governmental policies, democracy and civil rights, and organizations and institutions. What was the role of each of these players in making the issue worse or better, and also what they may or can do in the future? Our initial idea was to produce this topic in two parts, but later on we decided to go to the third section, which will be uploaded right after this one. I think it's a good idea to focus more on the issue of housing, but later on I have another question, more related to the time we are living right now during the COVID pandemic and the post-COVID life. Yuta, could you start the conversation please? Thank you, Bianca, for coming again. I mean, it's wonderful to have this opportunity to continue our conversation. I've been noodling all sorts of ideas that came up in our, our last discussion. One of the the ideas that you brought up is this this notion of salvage and how we there are certain things that we need to preserve, and it relates to the opportunity for self-critique, to, to not be defensive about certain ideas at the same time as you're evolving them or recognizing what the mistakes and failures were in those ideas. And uh, this time or this conversation, it would be great to, to take those and use them to, to think about homelessness, place, home, displacement, all of the, the issues that these two podcasts are intended to be about. Uh, and I, I wonder whether there are things that you've been thinking about in the interim between these two conversations. Yeah, there have been. And, and um, thank you for the opportunity to continue the conversation. I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, so, uh, and I'm glad you've pulled out a couple of the themes, the salvage piece and the, the critique and the, you know, self-critique in the, in the space to talk about those. Um, and, and I think, I was at a meeting this week that's actually quite relevant to this conversation, and it was hosted by Friends of Chinatown. And in Toronto, it's an interesting um, example because I, many years ago, lived quite briefly in an apartment on Spadina. And uh, interesting to think about how growth, densification, growth pressures, real estate pressures um, are now manifesting in Chinatown in Toronto. And listening, so this was a community meeting, um, really great turnout. You know, I think there's like 160 
people uh, shown up to a, a you know an online discussion about what to do. You know what 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 to do, how to preserve, how to how to defend against the pressures um, that would be displacing communities within Chinatown, and just a few things to to pull out of that. I think one of the really interesting um, mechanisms that has seems to be you know what I'd be curious to know how much you've thought and heard about land trusts in in all of your time looking at housing but there's one of the pieces of the discussion was to was to to be thinking about what a community land trust might look like and I'm saying we're at a very very early thing here and I don't want to retell the story in any way that that gets it wrong but bottom line is um, I live in Parkdale now and there's a community land trust group in Parkdale and there was discussion of this mechanism um, around, you know, how might it be possible to use a land trust to define use, to protect values, to make sure that people can afford to live there and all of that. And, and all of that brings with it a lot of conversations about self-governance, but also this really interesting tension with this moment with land back and doing work to honor issues related to land and ownership and property. So this was just one of those examples where I think there's just so many things going on at once in this moment and how many different conversations you need to hold and and um, think about concurrently to try to address issues related to displacement, place, history, mechanisms, governance, you know, and the long arc of history and the more recent arc and urban planning. Um, so I'll stop for a minute, but I just wanted to offer that up because I can tell you more about the meeting. It was fantastic to listen to and to see it, but it also requires some of the, like there was such a lovely moment of um, honesty within the group when someone's, you know, like, how do I get involved in this? And this sort of awareness of like, well, here's a group of people who've been working for this, you know, on this for a while. There's also a need to center those who are racialized and also part of the community, you know, like of the place, but also an, an interest and an openness to work across, you know, across the city and with others. Um, and being able to have those conversations in a group like that and just have everybody kind of see and hold each other accountable that, yes, that, that makes sense. There has to be some sense of how this is constructed in order for it to go forward and serve everyone um, is beautiful to see. And, and I see that happening better within community than I do within government, for example, where like governments don't know how to be honest like that about how they're dealing with difficult issues or, you know, not to say that one is necessarily difficult, but just something that doesn't have that answer that's clean and precise and like, here's how we are going to go. Um, so I'll stop. Just thought it was a really nice, very real example of these issues coming, you know, coming to land, so to speak, yeah. in, in Toronto right now. And I don't know if any of that promotes, promotes or prompts um, some thoughts from you, but it, it'd be a fun one to... Uh... Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that you're bringing up Chinatown. Um, I lived in Kensington Market and then on Brunswick Avenue. And I don't know if you there's this novel that everyone at some point has lived on Ken, on Brunswick Avenue, but I, I watched the, the change over the many decades of that area and the the various senses of neighborhood and community and that much of what you've said um, has prompted this th there was quite a, a debate in that neighborhood at the time where the there was a hospital at the foot of Brunswick and Spadina and a huge community debate about the closing of the hospital because it was the only multilingual hospital where they there were doctors that and nurses and medical practitioners that could speak multiple languages. And in having participated in those neighborhood debates about the closing of the hospital and the advocacy to not have it closed because it was it was a a crux or a very very important part of the neighborhood was this debate about who has voice in this neighborhood community decision. And of course, the voice is given to the people that, that currently own property mm -hmm. there. It's not to the people that just happen to be living there or the people that were previously living there or that are parts of the neighborhood that don't have that current sense of, or that current cachet of ownership at the moment. Um, and of course, the, the result was that the this hospital was closed. It uh, a developer purchased it and, and built condos there, but that has made me think about how can how how can we create structures that are not these singular ownership 
entities that um, are the ticket to participating in the planning, in the decision-making, a construct that is larger than a single property and the collective set of property owners, and that goes to the community, the neighborhood, because community and neighborhood is, is a, um, a much richer, more uh, potentially resilient thing than those uh, the, the disaggregated sets of pieces of property that, that someone currently has claimed to. So I, I like this notion of a land trust or something that gives voice to more than a collection of owners of property or taxpayers within an area. Um, the people that add color, that add richness to it, that help to construct a community or a neighborhood go well beyond the property owners within that. And that, of course, then gets to cities and how we construct cities, how we do our urban planning, who has a say there. Um, and so I, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts of land trusts and other ways of enabling greater participation in the discussion of what are neighborhoods, what are communities, and what are their needs. Yeah. And in this idea of like how you expand who has voice, right? Or who has, you know, or who is listened to, because I think that's one of those ones where you hear everybody has a voice. It's who's actively not listened to. It's also interesting to think about the dynamics of things like this came up in, in this meeting as well, like the BIA, the business improvement area, as being as one of these stakeholders that can be represented as, you know, yes, this is from the community or yes, this is this, but then it's also like representing a very narrow set of interests in terms of the broader community. And I think like that when you get into these structural pieces of like how you how you decide, you know, who, who you consult with when you have a conversation in a neighborhood um, and how they're represented is um, it's it's there's so many of these sub categories that I think are, are problematic because they're not expansive and they're not, um, they always tie back to, and I, and, and I think this is what, this was why it was so great how this surfaced in this discussion was like private property really being, and, and then to your point, ownership of said property really being at the root when we talk about radical, you know, approaches to different things, getting to the root of that as as something that does cause issue when we're trying to get more equity in, in how we, you know, think about managing shared resources. And I think the thing that I find fascinating about things where you have conversations about, say, a land trust, where you can start to think about use and longer term use and commitments you can make that are a better approach to, you know, pure play private property ownership. Um, but then also still our intention with issues where you can say, well, if that land isn't even rightfully owned by settlers, say, you're still not exactly there, right? So there's there's that tension in there. Um, but then there's also, I think, a tension which goes back to our first conversation. And I don't know how often you've experienced this, but I think I kind of mentioned it, this idea that you still need to have some order and some sense of authority and power and management and accountability when you are doing more self-governance. And I would say that's an area that I feel as though we have very little capacity in a lot of community. Um, and it's a very underfunded type of labor. And that in some cases, it's good that it's underfunded because it's important, I think, to keep some of our work out of models that are commercial or, you know, relate to any kind of capital. But then at the same time, you see that we, we, we do need to have those conversations and, and how are they had um, outside of or adjacent to or expansively to the ones that, you know, the city runs in terms of like a housing or homelessness or shelter location or, you know, that list goes on in terms of how the city's consultations look, you know, for any of these issues. Um, so I think there's opportunity but there's also like a lot of risk there because if there isn't that muscle to like do better self-governance, you can see that it becomes harder and harder to invite people into it, right? Because then it's just like, okay, well, who's in charge? How do we get there? It's like, how, how do we manage all of this together? And I think we're really out of practice on that front, really, really out of practice. And that may even go back to some of the conversations about like, how long out of practice are we on that? I mean, is that since colonial time out of practice? You know, like you can take that lack of practice to of doing self-governance, at least in Canada, I think back a pretty long time. So I'm curious if you have any 
examples that come to mind of, you know, like I know last time we talked about small projects or like small ideas where you think that this is this is going better. Um, we can also talk a bit more about the city piece of it, but I want to stop there and just wonder if, um, you know, like getting to that problem, if you agree that you think there's a problem there and if you see places where you've seen it actually work pretty well, because I've actually seen a lot of failure when I see groups come together and try to pull something off together. Like I've seen a lot of failure. <laughs> And this is something I've been thinking a great deal about, uh, and not just now, but historically as well. I, I actually grew up in a rural community, which was fairly xenophobic, but had a, a very tight reciprocal structure that where the, there there was this implicit organization and things got done and people supported each other. And certainly in times of crisis, um, you know, a snowstorm or whatever, there was the, uh, a pulling together of the community that uh, while there were issues with how outsiders were treated at, at a deeper level, it, there was still an underlying um, social infrastructure that kept everybody safe and made sure that everyone was cared for, even if you weren't necessarily there as part of the community. And having moved to the city, I, I still see that there are these types of networks that emerge and then disappear, in some cases strengthen and then leave. I think those more fluid structures are actually a good thing because they, when the order gets too entrenched, then there isn't, it can't evolve and it becomes so brittle and you have so many friction points. So I like the fact that you're talking about that order not being well-funded because, of course, funding usually comes with specific compromises and it, it comes with a, a variety of uh, requirements related to it and beholdenness to uh, a higher authority. So one of the areas that I've been looking at is is how do we use reciprocity, the idea or or the earlier ideas of insurance as a way of holding a community or a, a network of people together. The idea that um, what I contribute now, someone will contribute to me when I need it, um, so that it's not a, a, power, a hierarchical power structure, but just re reciprocity between people who recognize that I'm, I have something now, you, ha you don't, um, I may be in a position where I need something the next time. So I'm going to uh, pay it, I mean, the pay it forward, the, uh, and, and a lot of this has been trivialized and made to seem very Pollyanna-ish. But I think there is a, a, a call to this coming again through, in these little tiny grace notes during the, the pandemic. I'm, I'm noticing it certainly in my neighborhood where um, there, we have a community list and before, the, before COVID, there was a lot of fear of security and, and it started to go in directions that I really didn't like. But since the pandemic, there's a, a lot of neighbor helping neighbor and, and then extending that concern once we know that we're safe and well cared for to beyond the immediate neighborhood. And I'm, I'm watching this organic growth of a network where reciprocity and the thought that I may be safe now, but I won't be safe um, at another time. And it would be great to grow something that can take care of me when I feel not safe. But these are all very precarious networks. And, and I think there is a value in that fragility. I think the fragileness um, allows for greater evolution. And I'm not sure I want it to ossify or become um, more rigid or structured or well-supported or, or whatever, because that, of course, has costs as well. It, it'll be less welcoming of change or in situation or people that are members. Mm -hmm. But I love your, your sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you think about it that way, because I think the that kind of flexibility and, and not that sort of make sure you don't get these things 
ossify, right? Like that you create a structure and then it has like a funding stream and like it's like a forever governance sort of thing does in, instantiate power in ways that then it gets really difficult to um, to move. But I think one of the tensions with this and I think these sort of like the, the mutual aid and some of these things that have just been tradition and tradition, tradition for so long within communities where the state has just been a failure since, you know, step one for so many parts of people's lives. It does bring me back to that idea of you know, how do you split the labor between the mutual aid and the supporting and the and the informal and the, you know, community, like pure play community work? And then this other piece where it's, you know, I, I was talking to a friend the other day about how amazing our brains are as protective mechanisms from the amount of violence that we're all aware of, you know, like just how much violence we have to be able to suspend uh, attention toward um, in order just to function you know and I think like when I think about that in even some different like when, when I think about I'll give you my example related to housing here the fact that so many predominantly women but you know men and and other like women and children who are unable to leave a situation of um, intimate partner violence because there isn't a place for them to go in terms of like a failure that is a known failure, a described failure, a listed failure. Like that is one of those ones where as soon as I even just think about it for a minute, I'm just like, how morally bankrupt, you know, has the state and the institutions that track this kind of thing, how, you know, and, and I know we know this, I'm not saying anything we don't know, but what I'm saying is when I move from that awareness to what it means for me and others, when I think like, well, is there private property I have that I could contribute into this problem? Should I be saying, would somebody be able to come into my home that I don't know very well, but like at this point in time, isn't this where we should be? Should we be thinking, how do we reorganize the ways that we do hold property? And interestingly to me, this leads to what is not intuitive, but has come up in my um, sort of understanding of city planning and like using vacant properties is insurance and how we've got all these mechanisms to protect private property, but we haven't evolved those mechanisms to create space for like more um, flexibility or, because when you said insurance, this is so interesting to me, is that there are mechanisms that we should be designing to address the opportunity to share um, private properties better, but also that lend and are honest about the fact that there are risks inherent in doing that, right? And I think like that, those risks have to be taken seriously and creative mechanisms to address them have to be taken seriously. Because I understand why people aren't just throwing their doors open and being like, hey, you need a place to stay, come on in. Like, of course, that's a limited number of people within each of our communities that I think we'd be comfortable with. But on the other hand, this is just, it's like food waste, right? It's like these things where you're like, well, all we're doing is failing to figure out how to create alternative, not just governance, but actually like mechanisms Again, is the private property a good thing? No, like, I don't think so at this point in time. I feel pretty confident saying this is a problem, big problem, old problem, go back to England problem, like long, long, long problem. Um, but at the same time, we then need to be more creative about what to do with it so long as it's here tomorrow morning. And so I think like that example for me is one that I feel uncomfortable with my lack of activity, you know, toward work there, right? Like, and how should I be peace? How should I take that issue that I know about, you know, about, I'd say we all know about it. Aside from saying we need shelters and affordable housing and public housing and all of those things, cooperative, how all of that, yes, we need that supply. But until it's there, what else are we doing with what we have, right? Like, how are we reorganizing what we have differently? Um, and that feels like we're not really working there enough. And I'm sure there are people working there that I don't know of their work. And there's probably a long track of work. You know, I'm not going to assume it's not happening. But I also think there may need to be a way to engage different people in that work that come at it from that different angle, right? Like what's a new insurance product you could create to open up space so that there would be comfort um, in those who like own the space to do something else with it. Like, because I think I'll end on this note, like when I look at the city getting in trouble for not letting people sleep in small constructions that have been like designed to say like, hey, at least here's some shelter. I know that I'm going to guess there are staff who really want 
that to be okay. And then there's also the city as a corporation with the criminal liability problem if someone dies. And I, I just don't think we're talking enough about that specific problem. Like we're talking about it like, oh, the city's bad and the people coming up with these things are good. And then we just kind of walk away. And I think that's a very uh, juvenile understanding of our city. <laughs> so I'll stop. I'll stop at that point. There's lots of different tracks in there. Curious for, uh, you know, which of them <laughs> provoke a thought from you, Utah? Yeah. So housing scarcity and the the wasted space that could be housing, the, the haves, the have-nots in terms of places to live and feel safe. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I've, I've been thinking quite a bit about that as well. Having, I mean, there it's, it's interesting to see what happened in the Rust Belt and the brown spaces and how within the, the private sector or even with the NGO sector, those not individual housing, but business housing efforts took place just south of the border. Um, I, I'm, I know of many people that w- where the opportunity for the, um, that came, arose because of the closing of many of those factories and the status of uh, the, the communities there in terms of poverty and, and need, uh, such amazing creative uses of those brown spaces happened. And the the it was the disruption caused by the crisis that then loosened a lot of the restrictions that were within the regulatory processes or the entrenched laws. And um, is there an equivalent process that might happen with in terms of private space or, or uh, space for individuals rather than businesses? Um, certainly. Here in Toronto, we see things like the laneway housing and those things, but those have been gentrified as well. They they seem to be the opportunity to create very high cost rental spaces in your backyard, um, so that that hasn't worked very well. Um, the loosening or the the uh, not looking at all of the basement housing that is happening in places where it's not actually zoned for rental. I, I think to some extent is is a way of judiciously ignoring the, the building code or the housing code that we have within the city. But th- there isn't anything that is, or that I'm aware of, that is taking on the enormity of this, the, the many people that are, that don't have adequate housing. And COVID is, is, bringing it to the fore even more. I, I'm, I, I don't, <laughs> I've, you were talking about the, the labor that goes into anything that is, is organized informally or that grows organically without support from the city or without formal support from levels of government. Um, and I, w- one of the things that I've been trying to think about is what would be an infrastructure that could be provided by the government that would be sufficiently flexible, would be governed bottom-up, would not impose things that, that aren't uh, supportive of the diversity of needs that is there and the different contexts, and that would also allow or, or to give some protection to the, the potential violences that happen when we sequester or there, there are so many tensions yeah. here, right? There's the, the formalization and the that happens when there is top-down support, and the need to be much more flexible and fluid. There is the, the demand for privacy, and yet that as, as well it becomes this closing off where uh, things can happen that are are not safe to certain parties within that that sequestered private unit. So how, how do we achieve a, a balance and that between those tensions? Um, and that gets back to my, I mean, the original ideas that I was talking about, the, this idea of how do we make decisions? How do we plan? How do we make choices? And that we, we still seem to be wed to the notion that it needs to be either a binary choice or it needs to be a single homogenous structure that we create. We're not able to, generally, we seem not to be able to 
hold a plurality of possibilities totally. or a set of choices, a spectrum of ideas. Um, the decision has to be one or the other, or it has to be some sort of more rigid structure. Uh, so how do we create decision tools that uh, support uh, fluidity or variability, difference, and complexity, uh, especially in urban planning where that's such a, cr a critical need. Yeah, and I think urban planning is such a good example of one where the um, the the idea of process, like linear process, and like you know this is a thing, this is the type of plan, this is how we go out, this is how we talk to people, this is where we bring it back. Like, is one where that kind of rigidity is what it creates comfort for the planning profession, right? It's like, give me my set of rules. I will follow the rules. And if there's a problem, you point to the rules and you say to somebody, if you don't like the rules, here's you go talk about the rules. Um, and when that regime is, you know, as old and as problematic as it is, uh, trying to get into the like, um, you know, conversations about like, how do we, how do we update how urban planning works, right? Like how, how do we rethink city planning, the city of Toronto, or it's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming and how it um, gets into things like, you know, access to transportation, for example, how immediately you touch into like another, it, you intersect with another piece of planning. And then it's like, well, which one is centered? What is the thing that is centered? And there was this brilliant quote. There's a really good report from that um, on, um, I should bring it up, um, f that was done uh, in relation to the Friends of Chinatown um, undertaking right now and this sort of like looking at it and it's a study. And in the study, there's a quote about how heritage is the people heritage is the people of a neighborhood, you know, heritage is not the built form, heritage is not the, it's like, it's, it's a people. And I think this idea of centering people and how they exist in place as such a, you know, such an important thing, when you hold that up as an idea against any of the current standards, like it doesn't make sense. So it might be an interesting thing to, to sort of reverse engineer, like what would it look like to do an area study that centered people and, and what they were doing? You know, like how, how, do, you, how do you start to try to adapt pre-existing ways of like of planning and design to center people. And I think this is, this is what good work looks like that's coming out of, you know, these neighborhood level um, projects. And I am going to, before we wrap up, I will make sure I pull up this thing because I want to give attribution and point people to this report that was done for Chinatown. It's fantastic. And I think like the other, the other piece of this that I think about is how you try to create that kind of infrastructure for like different governance and different decision making and how that might really as a hyper local exercise like be the way that it makes the most sense because like you can imagine I, I often think when you go down to a neighborhood level you can have the conversations that people can follow along it's like okay those two houses have been sitting there vacant for how long like six months so what's going on with those two who's on that project let's go find that out like here's the thing here's the school any part of the school not being used is there alternative ways can it be used in a different way you know like I think we do have to come down to the hyper local level so that our brains can get around what alternative usage of property might look like or you know because then I think it's it's very intuitive to understand that's why I like community meetings right suddenly the risk of like someone's child getting asthma from a train that they think has too much diesel exhaust becomes like okay I can feel that now like if I read it maybe I wouldn't get it as much but when I look across a table to someone mm -hmm. um, even if I think that that's not a concern it suddenly becomes something I have to be able to at least speak to when I put forward my idea, you know? Um, and so I say this because like, I think this, when you just touched very early on about scale, like I think I have this really like questionable relationship with scale where a lot of the work has to be done very small, but it does feel as though the infrastructure that might enable more of that work to be done better should be something that could be scaled or at least made available. And I think we've seen that in the pandemic. I've seen amazing Google Docs shared that are about like mutual aid pods. And they just really lay out like, here's the thing, you set up this person, this is the person you call, these are the things we need, this is how we're going to do it. And it's just like, we need to move from in a lot of the work, I think, to resolve these problems, conceptual to like implementation and operations. And um, just because I'm constantly on this like last 40 years train, um, which I like to bring up, like what's what, what are some of our problems of the last 40 years? I will say that one of the trends that concerns me greatly is a lack of operational capacity in the state 
and when it's gone in the state, it's really hard to find how it like you almost then rely on operational capacity to come from people from their like work life or their family life or their whatever, you know, and it's, and and I do think we are in a time where ideas and concepts seem to be, and there's an economy around the like ideas and less of an economy around the like do the thing, the implementation and the operations. So like, I think we need to focus on implementation and operations for governance because I think like I know enough people who really like the Eleanor Ostrom, Sheila Foster work around you know commons and cities, but also enough people who've been in the rooms with people trying to work it out and say, yeah, it's not as easy as it sounds, you know, and like the how to do that kind of alternative ownership discussion, you actually need more guidance than you might think you need. And you need more case studies of like, how do you actually pull that off well? And like, it's not going to be the same everywhere, but there should be some things that are shareable, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and this gets to all sorts of other topics, like uh, the forms of democracy that are there. And uh, it reaches out to experimentations like quadratic voting and fluid democracy. And how do you... And, and those are the types of structures that I think are the type of infrastructure that I, that um, I've been thinking about, or to extend our notion of what is infrastructure beyond the the solid to the governance infrastructure infrastructure, and reimagining some of the the underlying just processes that we use for decision making and, and planning and moving forward. One of the things that I've been trying to encourage uh, some of the planning groups that I'm involved in to do is frequently, I mean, we were involved with the sidewalk debacle and there the, the primary um, information about what the planning was were these sales tactics of this is the ideal. And the, the pictures that we saw and the plans that we saw were all about the uh, idyllic average uh, user experience as opposed to well, let's look at the 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 more difficult, marginalized, potentially crisis-ridden examples of this of the uses of this space. Um, what is not the best case scenario, but what's the worst case scenario, and how will our plan uh, work within that that situation? Uh, what happens if we have a, a, a huge group of people that are not your average person that you show the pretty pictures of here within this. And, and I mean, I, I don't mean to, to uh, but to take uh, or to use sidewalk only, it's happening everywhere. Yeah. I mean, every architect's rendering is always about the idyllic. Um, so let's plan in, in such a way that it's not the idyllic, it's the unexpected, the people that have difficulty or can't use the the current space, that um, the resiliency of any informal planning structure or even formal planning structure depends on just rethinking how we we plan. And of course, there there's a tension as well that you have to uh, create some optimism while also taking into account the fact that that these are the things that could go wrong. I, I think much of democracy research decision making of any sort is uh, fairly askew at the moment and isn't prepared for the complexity and the entanglement and the vicious cycles yeah, it's, that are there it's not and i think like all of this is interesting when you add in the technology element too because like one of the reasons that some urban planners right. are excited by things like technology is that they would let you like i'm not a virtual reality person but the idea that you can put I say that in terms of like the amount of time I spend using it or knowing about it but the idea that you could help people picture like 35 different versions of what a building or a park or a parquet or a thing like could look like um that the ease with which that is done is higher than having to do like uh maybe um 
individual rendering for every single thing. Like there's there's something in the computation that allows you to like have many different things that are produced more quickly. Um, but then you get into like, yeah, but from what starting point? Uh, there's a saying about that. There's a, there's a word for this term and I can't remember what it is, but it's like everything kind of coming to the same thing. Like there's a, there's a problem that even though there's a diversity of things, they are all still within such a narrow frame that it's actually not really diversity. It's it, it's something around homogeneity. There's a woman named Wendy, something, it's slipping my mind, but um, really interesting because it's so much about algorithmic and computational iterations that like they just kind of go like this um, and bring into us to, to one point, but say that they're expanding the number of things you're looking at. Uh, which I find like that's one of those interesting like two things at the same time problem. Um, but the point to me is that if artists and others can help us use technologies to actually do that in a way that really does leverage the opportunity to show different ideas and, you know, like do it, but without falling into the trap of how I would say it's being commercialized at the moment. I think is interesting because I do think we struggle with things when they're abstract. And I do think we struggle with things when they're not tangible and grounded in like the place we're in and, and, and the mm -hmm. reality we know and, and how the thing that's not there will match or not match the things that are there already. And um, yeah, I wonder about technology's role in urban planning because I see it both increasing and also like being um, put into private, again, back to the idea of private property that like, some of the things that were issues, if we talk about, you know, public space and technology and use and surveillance and a lot of the issues that come with, like, how can you feel safe in a space are being skipped over and some of the technologies just being moved right into private spaces, like surveillance technologies being designed right into public housing, right? So that you can't even opt out of it. Mm -hmm. Every unit is now set up and it's in, you know, it's got a digital infrastructure component and we're not going to talk about that, but that's like a really, like... I mean, we're not going to, it's not one of those things that's on the table for a resident who might be applying to, to be in a space. And so I bring that up because when you were talking and when I think about the city of Toronto as an example and the scale, and I think people forget how big the city is sometimes. I mean, you might know the fact it's the fourth, lar the fourth largest in North America, but it is a big place in the way that, you know, like there's a, <laughs> there's a lot going on in the city. Um, instead of, and this is my same issue with government, some of the, what I would call problematic technology is being accelerated in some of the housing and shelter and like, you know, in the pandemic, we're going to have this janky, like we're going to measure your temperature, like all these things where it's like, that's not even a real thing. And now this is how we're spending money. Like, so I think how coronavirus is accelerating some of the like property technology and other things that are problematic is, is bad. And then as a technologist, the part where I get bothered is I remember how bad it was for the wait, like the technology being used to manage the affordable housing waiting list in Toronto. Like I haven't done a lap on that for a while, but it was brutal, like brutal. Like you could only use some version of Internet Explorer for a while. Like this was like really bad, really, really bad. And for me, it's the failure to apply where technology can be helpful in administrative function, you know, like if you have a whole bunch of properties and there is no one in them and there may be ways to try to accelerate the matching or the showing or the availability. And like, I think that's what bothers me a lot with governments and say planning departments or other housing authorities, like not using the technology in ways to actually address some of the really known and really bad problems and instead are accelerating the kind of stuff that like is really troubling. So I'm constantly saying about governments and, and authorities, like just get up to like late 90s, early 2000s proficiency with your technologies and you will both accomplish a lot and avoid a lot of trouble. Um, not that they're perfect, right? Like we've had problematic technologies like IBM being a really great, you know, since the 1960s problematic, you know, use of technologies even before then. But it's not to say there's any version of administrative technology that's great, but I am saying you could use it in ways that is different than the way I see it coming out now. And that sort of idea of matching need, even within mutual aid too, like matching needs and using technology to help people find stuff that they need. 
we undervalue that one. And that one's huge. Like that's one of the things I love about the internet is you can wave your little flag and someone might see you and like have a thing for you, you know? And I think like, I think that's an interesting thing when we think about governance and sharing resources and assets and the digital time, you know, that we're in. I think that's interesting is like, we're not leveraging what could be quite useful. And we're going like wild fast on stuff that we know is like, some of it should be in abolition category. Like don't like, no. <laughs> so I don't know what, if, w- yeah, where you exactly. see those intersections in your work, but I know they are all there in, in stuff you're working on. Yeah, most definitely. And, and of course, the, my biggest concern at the, has always been, I mean, since the 80s and 90s, is, is the vicious cycles within technology, the, the way in which Technology amplifies, automates, and just expands the inequities that are there. If I'm not participating in the technology, my information doesn't go into the design of the technology. If I don't buy technology, my vote regarding which technology should receive priority doesn't go into it. Just the data systems that like artificial intelligence is just expanding and amplifying and automating all of that. So if I'm on the wrong end of that cycle, then it it just it piles up and it just continues to expand. And at, I, I think at the heart of that is not techno. It's it's pre-technology or pre what we currently think mm-hmm. is technology. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually um, statistics and quantified research methods and the way that we make decisions that the way that we determine what is evidence. So if I'm someone that has not participated in that, I will not be able to participate because my the, the system will not be built for me to participate. So it uh, reinforces whatever inequities are there. So how does someone that is experiencing homelessness right now participate in any of <laughs> there are so many impediments to actually, it isn't just, do I have bandwidth? Do I have a, a digital system that will allow me to contribute? It it goes even further back than that. It, everything within the technology will be designed without you and designed in such a way that it's harder and designed in such a way that you're not important or prioritized. I've always, or I started out in this field as a techno-optimist, seeing the, the potential of technology to address some of these inequities. But instead, what has happened is that it's it's simply uh, exacerbated and, and amplified them. And you're right, there is this opportunity to connect and the opportunity to especially connect one group at the margins with another group at the margins. But that having been monetized takes that away as well. Totally. Uh, the the early thoughts of what we could do with a network that connected people has been uh, has gone down the wrong road. It's definitely gone 100%. sideways. 100%. But I think like that that when we get into this sort of salvage mode of thinking, I think one of the things that has um, I've really struggled with communicating is uh, the idea that like we could be writing from a civic and public perspective the requirements for technology. And in this moment, we particularly have an opportunity to say like, hey, coming out of this, there's public funding, there's procurement is a big way to like build things differently and states can set the rules. And I think the problem to date has been that there has been no incentive for governments like they basically merged with the private sector because if it's in commercial interest, then it's in government interest yeah. and then it takes off. Right. And I think at this point, yeah. um, building the confidence and the capacity in some of these administrative, like there's a lot here about administrative justice that feels like it's opportune, right? Like, is it, is it possible that I think we look at some of the actors like, you know, actors, bad word, but the library, um, the people who work in like shelter support systems and everything else, that they become the ones defining the requirements for these systems. And there's a really interesting intersection with labor. And I don't know if you remember this um, case that happened in Ontario, but it, it actually ended up that there was a grievance filed th- through a union for a software product that people who worked in, um, in uh, uh, social work in Ontario had to use. They were given a product and 
the effect of the data collection that they had to do and how it affected their job in terms of like going to a visit, having to log data, and it the way it changed the dynamic of how they did their work was so problematic for some of the people that did that work that they actually filed a grievance. And that I thought that was such a powerful story because I think this yeah. is this moment where labor defining how these tools work to do the work that needs to get done we have to have faith in the people that are in those roles to redefine this course of technology to have a non-commercial civic track. And not all of it has to be like that. But if it's state money, there has to be more of it that like, I think union power being something that gets pushed into like procurement and like these tools that are used for people in my long-term care home or in the hospital I work in or in the school I teach at, I'm going to say how they work and I'm going to do that through my union. I think there's like a really interesting surface there in this moment because it's different than classical labor organizing, I would say. Like it's beyond dental and health and like la- like salary. It's actually like, no, we're going to take control over how these things are affecting our society. And I think that's actually really like, but it's hard because in my experience, it's hard to make that the priority. It's hard to, when I say where I've struggled with communicating, I think it's really challenging to go from here to be like, hi, I know you have no time. Can you please add this whole new tangent of work into, you know, your union, for example, that feels really like a difficult request to make. Right. But it doesn't mean that the opportunity is not there. And I think like when, when we think about history, one of the things that has fascinated me is how like computer science was only ever basically commercial through the universities and everything else. Like there really hasn't been much thought about non-commercial technology as a driving force within the university. And I think that's like a not, it's not that it's zero, but it's certainly not anywhere near even like a sizable minority of funding and of attention. Um, so I wonder what, what, what do you think about that? Because you, I would say are an exception to that rule in the work that you've done, but like, what do you, do you think that that is a little naive to think that there's like room for that whole thing there? Cause I'm everything, when I think I think of something, I know it's already been thought of 20 times. So I'm just curious, like where that, where that exists in history or if it's like, like how it might intersect with something you've seen. Well, yeah, so that that's that is the 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 notion behind open source, right? And the open source movement and the the battles to to maintain uh, open licensing of infrastructure, computer infrastructure, but also the open standards, and um, so using a format that is portable that can't be locked up. It's the story of the internet. It's the story of all of the open source software systems um, that. Uh, quickly got closed off. But the initial optimism about what could happen with technology had its roots in in that notion that here was a shared set of tools that were not locked up with private licensing and patents, etc. So the Software Freedom Law Society, the um, all, all of the, the efforts there. Uh, and I, I think it, it's time to reanimate those. I, I think one of the impediments, though, is you were talking about the social workers or the individuals that are using the tools that operationalize our society. Our reward systems are completely upside down, yeah. right? I mean, they are in a position where they are just struggling to survive. So where do you have that additional, the additional resources, personal resources to contribute to such a collective effort. I I think there has to be a a recalibration of how we value labor and which labor is valuable and how we reward that labor such that those individuals that um, perform those essential operations are sufficiently resourced and rewarded and remunerated that they are, they will have the time and capacity to participate in this type of salvage work or, or renovation work of, of our social infrastructure, uh, whether it's for cities or 
uh, work or health or education or any of those. Yeah, because I think like the university is something that I don't know if enough people understand the dynamics of what it means to work in a university. You know, like I, I don't think it's something I didn't have a good any real insight into until the last maybe five, six years. Like knowing people, knowing scholars, knowing people who are deans, like, you know, these they, like that. It's like, OK, so what does that look like in the daily life of this role? And I think for me, I was always assuming that there was so much opportunity for this sort of like public interest work to happen through universities and then you peel back some layers and you're like wow everybody's at capacity just hanging on in an already pretty wild political economy of trouble which does not honor like the implementation of some of previous knowledge I think universities are really always about novelty you know like sometimes I look at people's work I'm like wow you're constantly rewarded for like being the next thing you know like knowing having the next term or the next whatever and I hope if any of this is is giving you pause and you want to challenge it I'd love for you to do so because what uh, yeah I would love to no good that. good good I, I I actually I I think the universities are created not to resist change um the yes it is the next uh incremental add-on within a, a, a confined discipline but um if you stray from that uh trajectory and you don't build upon the, uh, the peer structure, the peer hierarchy, then it, it has to take, it has to be backward compatible. Right. It cannot be a complete departure or a completely new view. Um, it's very, very resistant to that. And it's structured in such a way that it doesn't allow for anything that that is a departure from what comes before. Right. It's, it builds incrementally. And, and it's very reductionist so and very fragmented and siloed Good. uh so they yeah well institutionally <laughs> but but, the, but in terms of how we might see like we being someone from outside the university see like um a scholar's work and it's like okay i've got another i've got to like write another book or i've got to say another thing or i've got to publish publish right, publish yeah. publish and publish perish. right and so when what, what i was thinking about yeah. was when you with the university as an example um what I've learned through these years is like, wow, there's a lot of work that goes into having to like do this administrative work of just how the university functions and then all the research work. And so when I think about what it would mean to go to university and be like, hey, let's design your big blue button um, instance so that you're in charge of your classroom and it's not Zoom that you're just getting handed how many professors would be like, sweet, sign me up. Like I've got so much time to do that. It would probably be very few, right? So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to run through where this problem in the example I'm sharing is because the same thing, maybe people within like even the housing administration at a university could be part of a creative solution to like addressing some of the demand problems in a city with homelessness. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but I know there's, a, yeah, no, you know? There, there's definitely, yeah. Yeah. And there, I, I think there is the capacity to release some of that energy from, um, if you think of the, um, the salvageable labor within a university or within education in general, we engage students and faculty in these uh, disposable assignments, um, these, these useless exercises that end up only being seen by the professor and the student, um, that where every student repeats the same redundantly repeats this useless exercise of, of course, the purposes of assessment and as evidence that they've learned something. What if we took that energy and devoted it and these creative minds to actually look at real world relevant problems that are going to result in something that is is useful to the community and to the, the problems that we're currently facing? Yes, I think there's there's a ton of potential there, but it requires a rethinking of what is assessment. Mm. How do we assess? How do students provide evidence of learning? Um, what is the review process that goes into proposing an area of study? All of those things. But you're right. There, there is. If we could salvage that <laughs> that thinking capacity, yeah. that energy source, it would be amazing. There's a ton of potential. Yeah, there. and I think about that with, it's good to hear you say that, because like when I think of one of the most latent underused sources of power right now, it's public sector unions in terms of mm -hmm. putting different pressure on the, on how technology and policy um, plays out. Because 
it could influence almost every type of work, right? If you look at a city and you look at like who is unionized workers within XYZ space, they are they're gonna, you know, you're gonna find multiple places where this touches on elements that relate to planning and housing and you know the operations of the city. But who is the leadership that's gonna pull that off? And that's what I haven't seen. I haven't seen that leadership within the public service. I haven't seen that leadership at the city level. It requires someone to be incentivized. And I think that goes back to your points around what's measured and what's success look like, right? And if there's no incentive to take that kind of creative work on, you're not gonna like who you're not gonna do it, <laughs> you know, unless sure, you can have a few, like, wow, lucky us, somebody's really excited about this thing, but you can't build a society on that kind of labor. Like, it's a bad, bad, (laughs) bad, bad approach. But I also think that the fear that comes when you're trying something new, and I think about that with like ethics and research, for example, and technology and data and like, you know, putting students or people who aren't really familiar with some of the contexts into them to work on things. I also think that's brings us back to one of our fundamental problems right now is being in good relations with each other, you know, like, how do you make sure that you set people up for really inefficient tracks of just like relationship development so you can actually be helpful? Because the amount of time you have to spend to actually get situated in, in, in a space properly to be helpful and not to be harmful, even though you meant well. Um, we don't have a lot of capacity for that, right? And I think like in planning, one of the, to bring us to some of the, the, yeah. the discussions of housing and homelessness again, and urban planning processes, and then bringing it over to um, reconciliation and um, being in right relations, you know, with issues related to land in place, there's this formality of like duty to consult through the crown. Like if you're thinking with different indigenous peoples or treaty first nations, Um, And then you see a planner who like knows that that's a thing and then freezes up at the idea of like, well, maybe we should just be talking to people here. Like, like, let's go understand what's going on here. Let's go understand what the history of the community is. Let's go understand what the status like. Let's let's talk in ways that are informal and that are also like learning. Um, That's not that's like the opposite of what the supposed like steps you're supposed to take are, you know? So I think it just goes back to this like protocol kind of almost shoving you in the wrong direction rather than these informal um, relationships that need to be had to develop the kind of trust where you can like help someone, you know, like you, you can't just, you know, appear in a place, you, you, you know, this through all the processes that are followed for ethical design, obviously better than I do, but I just say like on a, on a, on a macro level, um, I don't ever see that time set aside in process, you know, like to just be inefficient and to become in relationship with people that you want to like, you know, work with in some way. And I think that is a really, really yeah, bad I mean, laws... thing right now. And in, in, in the moment we're in, it's, it's, it's like you can feel it so much right now that I, there's like a frozenness to engaging with people because you're not really sure how you're even supposed to do it. Yeah. And and there's so many things there that uh, that you've triggered. Um, the, I mean, the one thing at, when you're talking about ethics, uh, the ethics and research committees assume that research means a objective researcher and a subject that is being researched, a passive subject that's being researched, and this notion of objectivity. I mean, that needs to be deconstructed. And there, of course. Um, that because that doesn't allow for co-design or this idea that the lived experience is in fact the area of expertise. It isn't the academic or that is the researcher that is the expert. Uh, so we we need to flip that relationship. The the um, I, I think regulations and laws are largely there because uh, we haven't we don't know we're not doing what's good for us, right? I mean they're there to some extent to formalize and to impose things that if we really thought about it, we would collectively do not with without the regulations that are there. So they, they, to some extent become this constraining thing that actually is far too blunt an instrument and not capable of the, the necessary organic growth or responsiveness that we need. They're a punishment for not having done things that we should be doing just out of enlightened self-interest. I, I, I think one of the areas when we've, when I've engaged students in problem or project-based learning, one of the, the first things that we need to 
deconstruct is this notion of who is the expert and who is not the expert. What is the the expertise of value? How do you uh, gain trust? Who is in control? Who who does the problem framing? How do we make decisions? And yes, the the first step is very much establishing that relationship and taking the time to establish the relationship. And the other um, barrier within academia are the time frames. A course takes so much time. A degree takes so much time. It's it's chopped into these little things which are not uh, don't leave any room for the natural progression of that type of trust building or problem solving or uh, knowledge gathering so that you actually have some sense of the complexity of what you're dealing with. Thanks for listening to this ongoing conversation. We will return for the third and last part of this discussion with a question about hybrid life during the COVID pandemic and post-COVID time. It was episode 17 of Quantization, Salvage or Demolish. We want to thank Bianca and Yuta for being part of this conversation. Please share your comments with us. Check our website, quantization.ca, for more episodes and full transcripts. And don't forget to listen to the third part of this conversation. Marshall Bureau composed all tracks in this episode. Quantization Podcast.